Hi everyone, welcome to our dental hygiene board review. This is part 11, uh, periodontology. For perio, I'm only gonna use one review source. So we'll go ahead and get started with inflammation and tissue repair. Inflammation, the cardinal signs of inflammation, rubber, which is redness, calor, which is heat, dolor, which is pain, tumor is swelling and then loss of function so these are the five cardinal signs of inflammation next we have hypertrophy and hyperplasia hypertrophy is an increased cell size hyperplasia is an increased number of cells so there's more cells in hyperplasia in hypertrophy the cell size just increases Next is atrophy, which is a decrease in the size and number of cells. Metaplasia, this is adult cell changes to a different cell type. So the cell, the adult cell changes to a completely different cell type. So that's important. Acute versus chronic. Acute infection is an immediate or early response, and it doesn't last for very long. This is in red. PMNs get to the site for the first 6 to 24 hours. Monocytes, which is a precursor of macros when left the bloodstream. And chronic inflammation is a response to a persistent Infection, it has a long duration over weeks, months, and years. And in red, it says macrophages, lymphocytes, and plasma cells make antibodies. So just remember for acute inflammation, you have PMNs for the first 6 to 24 hours and then monocytes. For chronic, you have macrophages, which is the monocytes turn into macrophages. You have lymphocytes and then plasma cells that make antibodies. Now for the microscopic events, we have a sequence of events. And I'll tell you what parts are in red. But this is very important regarding inflammation. Um, number one, brief vasoconstriction of small vessels. Then vasodilation of the same vessels within seconds. Then hyperemia occurs due to, this is in red, an increased blood flow due to the vasodilation. Then an increased vascular permeability occurs. Next, transudate leaks out of vessels into the tissues via increased permeability. Then we have an increased blood viscosity that occurs because there's uh, the loss of fluid into the tissues. Next is a decreased blood flow occurs because of the increased viscosity. Next is margination and pavementing occurs. It's in red move because of the movement of white blood cells to the vessel wall. So that's important. And then immigration of the white blood cells occurs 
says, uh, because of movement, movement of PMNs going to the tissues via increased permeability and margination slash pavementing. Then you have a further increased vascular permeability. Then this is in red, excudate now enters the tissue causing an edema due to the PMN immigration. And phagocytosis occurs in the injured tissue. So that's kind of crazy, <laughs> but I'm gonna shorten it up a bit and read over it one more time. Sequence of events. Brief vasoconstriction of the small vessels. Then there's vasodilation of those vessels within seconds. And then we have hyperemia that occurs because there's an increased blood flow from the vasodilation. Then increased vascular permeability occurs. Then transudate leaks out of the vessels into the tissues. Then the blood becomes thicker because there's a loss of fluid. And then that slows down the blood flow because of this thick blood. And then at this stage, margination and pavementing occurs, which equals the movement of white blood cells to the vessel wall. So that's in red. Know that. When margination and pavementing occurs, it is the movement of white blood cells to the vessel wall. Next is immigration of white blood cells. And... Further increased vascular permeability occurs. And in red, it says excudate now enters the tissues causing the edema. So that's very important. And then lastly, phagocytosis occurs in the injured tissue to just come in and clean everything up. Next, um, we'll talk about the clinical feature versus the microscopic event. So, whenever the, uh, the part, the body part turns red, you have the erythema, we, you have redness or ruber, then we have hyperemia due to vasodilation. When we have heat and calor, that is also due to the hyperemia due to the vasodilation. When the swelling and edema occurs... That's due to the exudate in the tissue because of increased permeability. When we have pain and dolor, that is from the kinnons, bradykinnon and prostaglandins um, being in the area. Loss of function, this is from the edema, pain, and swelling. And then fever from the prostaglandin and cytokines being released into the area because of a response to pyrogens produced by white blood cells and microbes. So pyrogens cause a, heat, a fever because pyro means hot. So the cellular process of inflammation begins with margination, goes to pavementing, which is the adhesion, then immigration through the blood vessel wall. 
and then you have chemotaxis towards the site of injury. So now we'll talk about soft tissue healing. We'll go through the steps of healing after periodontal debridement. There's three steps. Number one, periodontal debridement causes some disruption and removal of the junctional epithelium, or JE, which is the epithelial attachment to the tooth. Um, also due to removal of deeper connective tissue. And the epithelial lining of the pocket wall, which is done uh, inadvertently. So, after it's removed accidentally, the healing takes place and the junctional epithelium heals within five to seven days as an elongated epithelial attachment. So, the junctional epithelium heals in five to seven days and it heals as an elongated epithelial attachment. That is in red. And then the connective tissue heals slowly within one to four months. And this is the reason that after periodontal debridement, we don't probe for four weeks because the connective tissue is very fragile and it's in the early stages of healing. So the uh, healing after periodontal surgery, we have a blood clot forms, then inflammatory cells such as macrophages and lymphocytes migrate into clot to eliminate microbes and debris and digest fibrin in the clot. And then how long it takes for everything to heal. The junctional epithelium heals in five to seven days. Surface epithelium forms in 10 to 12 days. Epithelium thickness forms in 14 days. Connective tissue heals in about four weeks. Four weeks to four months is what it says. And then bone heals in between four to six months. So this is very, very important, the healing time. So I'm gonna say it again. Junctional epithelium heals in five to seven days. Surface epithelium forms in 10 to 12 days. Epithelium thickness forms in 14 days. Connective tissue heals within four weeks to four months. Um, the bone heals between four to six months. Now we're going to talk about healthy gingiva, PDL fibers, furcation classification, and then fenestration and dihensense. So, starting with gingiva, the sulcular epithelium, which is the lining of the sulcus, is thin, non keratinized epithelium. Uh, gingival Cravicular fluid is excreted from the sulcular epithelium. In health, it is smooth and intact with no reedy pegs, and it should be one to three millimeters deep. Uh, 
to be healthy. Gingival crevicular fluid flows from the connective tissue and spreads through the sulcular epithelium into the sulcus. For this, it's important to know that the gingival crevicular fluid is minimal in health. Next is the junctional epithelium. It forms the histologic base of the sulcus. It is also non-keratinized, stratified squamous epithelial cells. It is 15 to 20 cells thick coronally and only a few cells thick apically. So the junctional epithelium, the cells are thicker um, coronally and then apically the cells are very thin. In health, it is 0 0.25 to 1.35 millimeters thick, that is in red. The gingival connective tissue, also what we call the lamina propria, the cells are made up of fibroblasts, macrophages, and mast cells, and it attaches to the root surface. Next, we're gonna talk about the periodontal ligament. It is not in red, but I do feel like it'll be on boards. So the picture that I'm looking at is showing a maxillary molar. So the roots are pointed upward, and I'm going to explain the location of the periodontal ligament whenever I give the description. So we'll start with the apical fiber bundles. They are at the apices, and the definition says it has a suspensory function. It runs from the cementum of the root apex to the alveolar bone and it is not present in erupting teeth. And you know like the roots are the last thing to form, so they probably form once the roots are completely formed themselves. themselves. Okay, so that's the apical fiber bundles. It is at the apex of the tooth root. Next is the interradicular fiber, fiber bundles. Has a suspensory function protects interradicular bone, runs from the cementum to alveolar bone, and it is not present in single-rooted teeth. It is, in the picture, it is in the root furcation. So, in the furcation is the interradicular fiber bundles. Next, we have the oblique fiber bundles. They are on the, like the lateral sides of the tooth. Transfers occlusal forces to bones. Runs from cementum to alveolar bone at an angle. It says this is the largest group of PDL fibers. So like I said, they're the fibers that run up the side. And then there's two left. We have the horizontal fiber bundles and alveolar crest fiber bundles and they are up closer to the crown. The horizontal fiber bundles, oh, and both of them attach, uh, well, okay. Horizontal fiber bundles 
attaches to the root from the root surface to the alveolar bone. So it's and it runs horizontally from the cementum to that alveolar bone. And then the alveolar crest retains the root and opposes lateral forces, but it runs from the cementum to the crestal bone. So just like the name of the ligament, alveolar crest, kind of gives it away, runs from the cementum to the crestal bone. So apical fiber bundles, the name kind of sounds like the location too. So apical fiber bundles down by the apex and has a suspensory function. Okay. Next is the interradicular fiber bundles and they are in the furcation and not in single rooted teeth. Next are the oblique fiber bundles and they are, they're on the sides. Um, they are the largest group of PDL fibers and they transfer occlusal forces to bones. And then next is the horizontal fiber bundles uh, closer to the crown and they um, they run horizontally. And then lastly are the alveolar crest fiber bundles that retain the tooth. They're the, the highest up of the bundles. And they oppose lateral forces. And I think that's about it for the periodontal ligament. If you get stumped up, I think that you can just draw a picture of the tooth and try to remember where the ligaments are during boards and it'll help you if you have if you get any questions about it. My friend that took peri or that took the boards already, she said there was like no perio on boards, which blows me away, but we're still going over it. <laughs> um, next we're gonna talk about the alveolar process. An alveolar bone, this is the bone of the lamina dura, an adjacent cancellous bone. It includes alveoli which are the tooth sockets so the alveoli are in the alveolar bone and the lamina dura lines the tooth sockets mm, and this contains sharpies fibers from uh, pdl fibers now a dehiscence this is a resorbed area of bone over facial root surface of over facial surface of root it occurs with labial inclined roots a fenestration is like an opening or a window of facial bone loss on the facial surface of the root so a fenestration is like a partial dehiscence where a dehiscence is where the whole uh, bone over the area of the facial surface has been resorbed. So a fenestration is more like a little window, an opening um, of bone loss. Now we're going to talk about the biologic width of the alveolar process. This is really important. It is, uh, it's in red. So we'll just talk about it 
Biologic width, this equals one to two millimeters of connective tissue attachment covered with epithelium. It is between the probing depth and alveolar bone. The base of the pocket is not at the level of the crustal bone. So you do have that one to two millimeters of biologic width. Um, and now we'll talk about the bone loss caused by perio disease results in osseous defects, such as a supra bony pocket or infra bony pocket. A supra bony pocket, this is where the base of the sulcus is coronal to the crustal bone. So the pocket or base of the sulcus is above the crustal bone. And then an infrabony pocket, this is where the base of the sulcus is apical to the crustal bone. So that means the pocket is below the crustal bone. So in this osseous defect, you have superbony pockets and infrabony pockets. A suprabony pocket, supra is above. So the base of the sulcus is above or coronal to the crustal bone. In an infrabony pocket, the base of the sulcus or the pocket um, is apical to the crustal bone. Okay. So now we'll talk about the host response. Development of periodontal disease is dependent upon microbial assault and a host response. There's a note that says, tissue destruction seen in periodontal disease results primarily from the host response. And it says that host response has a wide variation in individuals um, because it's based on an individual's response to microbes because you're not really going to know what everything, how every person is going to respond to certain microbes. Now we'll talk about the blood and nerve supply to the periodontium. Blood supply to the mandible comes from the inferior alveolar artery. Blood supply to the maxilla comes from the superior alveolar artery, which makes sense. Mandible is on the bottom, maxilla is on the top. So just think superior for the upper, inferior for the lower. Um, sensory innervation to the PDL in bone of the mandible and maxilla comes from the trigeminal nerve. So we have cranial nerve V2 and cranial nerve V3. Receives stimuli for pain, pressure, and proprioception only. Now we'll talk about a periodontal assessment. It says that it includes uh, collecting the probing depths, measuring the clinical attachment loss, checking for BOP and separation, furcations, checking for pathologic mobility and migration. So we probe to assess the progression and remission of perio disease. We check the clinical attachment loss 
to assess the progression and remission of periodontal disease. We check the furcations, which is the site where the root base divides into separate roots. And in health, the furcation is not clinically detectable or visible. If a patient has a furcation involvement, they have an increased risk for bone loss and tooth loss. So now we'll talk about the classification for the furcations. Before we do that, I just wanna say the reason that furcation involvement is, is a increased risk for bone loss and tooth loss is because we can't get under there to clean it. We can't see it, we can only see it radiographically. Okay, so for class one furcation, there's a concavity felt with a probe, but it's not visually seen. So the interradicular bone is still intact. Class two, the probe partially fits into the furcation and the concavity is visible. So there's some loss of interradicular bone. Class three, the probe passes through the furcation the start of the furcation is visible to the clinical eye, and this means that there is a complete loss of interradicular bone. Class four is complete visibility of furcation, which, and you can see clinical attachment loss plus gingival recession, and an additional loss of bone around the roots. By the time you get to a class two furcation, the furcation is evident on a radiograph. And in a class three furcation, you will see a black triangle on the radiograph. So next is pathologic mobility. This is an abnormal movement due to alveolar bone loss or PDL factors. Um, there's three classifications of mobility, class one, there's a slight mobility of one millimeter, class two, moderate mobility of one to two millimeters, and class three is severe mobility at two millimeters or more. Some of the causes is injury, pregnancy, trauma, inflammation from an acute periapical abscess, um, and this is in red that when checking for mobility, you need to assess mobility with two instruments and not your fingertips. Next, we're gonna talk about microbes, plaque, and calculus, which is really good because this is going to be a review of micro as well with bacteria. Um, this is in red, dental plaque. This is the major etiologic factor in the initiation and progression of periodontal diseases. Dental plaque biofilm, uh, this is in red as well, has a strong adherence to teeth slash oral structures slash unit water lines, etc. It is made up of bacteria primarily and then glycolax, which is a sticky extracellular matrix that holds the biofilm together and it has canals and channels for nutrient and waste transfer. Materia alba is not strongly adherent. So we're not talking about materia alba, we're talking about dental plaque biofilm. So the microbe characteristics 
In gram-positive microbes, they are aerobic and not modal. In gram-negative microbes, they are anaerobic and they can be modal, so that's bad. And gram-negative microbes have LPS uh, endotoxins. All periodontal pathogens have vesicles filled with endotoxins. Specific microbial flora. In gingival health, the flora is streptococci. In gingivitis, the flora is actinomyces and Prevotella intermedia. The flora in chronic periodontitis is Porphyromonas gingivalis. The flora in lap is the AA words. I'll try to get this out. Actinobacillus, actinomycetomycomatans. My teacher just called it AA. So that's found in lap. And then the flora found in nug and nup are spirochetes, treponemia, fusoform bacilli, slash Prevotella intermedia, and Vincent's organisms. Some of these bacteria are a real pain in the butt because I can't pronounce them or spell them. Okay, and since we're on the subject of the specific microbial flora, I just wanted to let you know about a mnemonic that I have for the karyogenic bacteria species. It's, uh, and it's from an app that I have. Species of bacteria implicated in karyogenesis. Um, and you can remember all of them by the word saliva. S is for streptococcus mutans. A is for actinomyces. L is for lactobacilli. I is on here just because lactobacilli rhyme or ends in I and they needed an I to make the word. V for Vellanella species. And then A for another type of actinomyces. So there you go. Tissue destruction in perio disease can be caused by bacterial enzymes, such as collagenase and protease, that break down collagen and proteins. Um, endotoxins that are released by bacteria, so LPS, which is lipopolysaccharides which is what gram-negative microbes do. Um, and those endotoxins cause bone resorption and it inhibits the formation of collagen. And then also can be caused by a host response, such as your PMNs and macrophages producing enzymes that resorb bone in a hypersensitivity immune response. Now we're going to talk about the development of dental plaque. We talked a bit about this a little bit in micro. Um, the three stages of plaque formation, you have 
the pellicle formation, the initial bacterial colonization of the pellicle, and then bacterial growth and maturation. During the maturation of supergingival plaque, gingival inflammation equals an increase in gingival cravicular fluid, which remember in health, it's supposed to be minimal. So you've, now you've got an increase in gingival curricular fluid because of the, or as a result of the gingival inflammation. Then you have an increased swelling, um, an increased sulcular space, which also causes an increase in plaque growth, and then a plaque growth into the subgingival space. And then in red, it says fluid equals nutrients for bacteria plus increased sulcus area provides protection. So there's a note on here to know all of that. Now we're going to talk about dental plaque comparison, supergingival plaque biofilm, and subgingival plaque biofilm. So supergingival is coronal to the free gingiva, so it's outside of the pocket. Um, formation is pellicle formation, bacterial colonization, and then growth and maturation. So it all kinds of kind of rhymes like a little song. Pellicle formation, bacterial colonization, and growth and maturation. And inhibitors are saliva and chewing and swallowing foods. So that stops the, the plaque biofilm from becoming more. Next is subgingival plaque biofilm located within the gingival sul sulcus um, initiated by supragingival plaque. So it starts out supra. Apical growth into the depth of the sulcus. Dense anaerobic bacteria attached to the tooth plus, this is in red, plus a pathogenic motile anaerobes and they stay close to the sulcular epithelium so that's how this plaque biofilm forms so it starts with the supra and it grows into the depth of the sulcus and then it has anaerobic bacteria attached to the tooth plus the pathogenic motile anaerobes so it, it all gets in there and it stays close to the sulcular epithelium and the only inhibitor is curricular fluid because it can flush it out. Let's see. So calculus. Calculus does not cause periodontal disease, but it, it aids in it. It contributes to the development of the gingival and periodontal diseases via providing sheltered areas for the plaque to be close to the tissues. Dental plaque in red is the major etiological factor in the initiation and progression of gingival periodontal disease. Okay, so true or false? Calculus is the major etiological factor in the initiation and progression of gingival and periodontal disease. The answer is false because calculus does not contribute to the development of gingival or periodontal diseases. It is dental plaque that is the major etiological factor, which of course plaque actually hardens and turns into calculus, but it is plaque first. 
calculus formation, calculus is formed by the deposition of calcium and phosphate salts within the plaque. The rate of calcification or mineralization varies greatly. Um, the onset of mineralization occurs in four hours to 14 days. This part's in red. Saliva pH slash increased calcium and increased phosphorus in saliva equals an increased rate of mineralization. So saliva, calcium, and phosphorus. And it causes the plaque to harden and turn into calculus. And then the characteristics of supergingival calculus and subgingival calculus. Supergingival is also known as salivary calculus because of the salivary glands, the, the saliva causing it or mixing with the phosphorus and calcium and turning it into calculus. Um, it's coronal to the free gingival margin, so it's not in the, it's above the, the gingival margin. It can be yellowish white deposited in layers and formed from salivary uh, products and salivary proteins. Let's see, it is site specific. Next is the subgingival calculus. This is also known as serumal calculus due to the blood. It's apical to the free gingival margin, so it's in the sulcus or under the gums. It can be black, dark green, uh, from the blood products, usually deposited in rings or ledges, and usually tenacious, hard to remove, formed from cravicular fluid products, and it's not site-specific, so it can show up anywhere. Next, we're going to talk about gingivitis, periodontitis, abscesses, and occlusal trauma. So the etiologies of periodontal disease, the primary etiology of all perio diseases is the inflammation of gingival tissues via bacterial plaque. Secondary etiologies of all perio diseases are secondary occlusal trauma and then plaque retentive features and systemic factors. Plaque-induced gingivitis. Gingivitis is the inflammation of the gingival tissues and is the most common human disease. Four stages of gingivitis development. You have initial, early, established, and advanced. Initial stage is asymptomatic. The early stage, um, you have an ulceration of sulcular epithelium bleeding on probing, and connective tissue destruction. The established stage is a widened intracellular space and sulcus um, and plasma cells. The advanced stage, you have periodontitis, junctional epithelium detaches, and bone loss. Periodontitis. This is the inflammation of the attachment apparatus, which is the PDL, cementum, and alveolar bone. Migration of the junctional epithelium apically 
and that is elongation of the JE. And then bone loss occurs. It begins in the crustal bone. Um, a periodontal pocket is a pathologically deepened sulcus, uh, and it, it, is, it has increased probing depths due to the swelling of the free gingiva, so you can have a pseudo pocket, or you can have connective tissue loss and junctional epithelium elongation and apical migration, which causes a true periodontal pocket. You can have a super bony or infrabony periodontal pocket. Super bony is where it is above the alveolar crest. Infrabony is where it is extending apically from the crest of the alveolar bone. The pathogens of periodontitis. As inflammation progresses, you have sulcular epithelium thickens and forms reedy pegs. So the sulcular epithelium does not normally have reedy pegs, but once you have the pathogenesis of periodontitis, then the sulcular epithelium thickens and reedy pegs form. Periodontal disease is an antigen-antibody immune reaction. It says, and these are in red, lymphokines are released by B cells, and this causes bone resorption. Prostaglandins released by host and bacteria interaction causes bone resorption, and then activated complement via the host bacteria interaction also causes bone resorption. So all of this bone resorption from period disease is from an antigen antibody immune reaction and what is causing it are lymphokines, prostaglandins, and activated complement. It says that it is pushed into overdrive in the presence of something and that so many B cells that they release lymphokines in bone resorption. Now we're going to talk about chronic periodontitis. More common, this is the most common form of periodontal disease characterized by clinical attachment loss, slowly progressive bone resorption, and primarily horizontal bone loss. The severity is directly related to plaque accumulation and calculus accumulation. The severity of perio disease classification is slight, moderate, or severe. Slight periodontal, slight chronic periodontal disease is three to four millimeters for probing depth, up to 15% bone loss, and one to two millimeters of clinical attachment loss. Moderate chronic periodontitis is five to six millimeters for the probing depths, 16 to 30% bone loss with three to four millimeters of clinical attachment loss. And then severe chronic periodontitis 
the patient will have seven or more millimeters um, deep pockets, 30% or more bone loss, and then five or more millimeters of clinical attachment loss. And those can be measured the best with a, a radiograph as far as the bone loss goes. Um, chronic periodontitis can be localized or generalized. Localized is 30% or less of the sites in the mouth are involved, where generalized is over 30% of sites involved. The activity and remission of, of chronic period disease is determined by monitoring the probing depths, bone loss, and clinical attachment loss. Clinical attachment loss is the measurement from the CJ to apical pro probing depth of the pocket. Um, it measures disease progression over time. It, it says uh, clinical attachment loss, probing depth, percent of bone loss are defining elements for classifying periodontal disease. And in health, alveolar bone is one to two millimeters apical to the CEJ. This is uh, biologic width is incorporated into that. Then we'll talk about treatment, um, removal of local etiologic factors such as plaque and calculus, education and personal plaque control, um, and periodontal surgery if needed, Root planning removes endotoxins from cementum. It removes calculus and disrupts plaque biofilm. And it says the primary reason to root plane without calculus is just to remove, it's to shave those endotoxins off the, the root, the tooth. So now we'll talk about the types of aggressive periodontitis. We have prepubertal, perio. We have lap, gap, rapidly progressive, and refractory, perio. So we'll talk about each one. Prepubertal, perio, is usually in children 12 years old and younger. Hence the, the name of it, prepubertal. LAP is localized aggressive periodontitis. GAP is generalized aggressive periodontitis. Both LAP and GAP, you have an abnormal PMNs. So like your body is not really doing everything that it should be doing to fight off the perio disease. Um, in LAP, the localized, you have the AA, a, a actinal my something comatans. So, lap has AA and it's localized. And this is it occurs in people 20 years old and younger. Gap is the same thing, it's just generalized. It also occurs in uh, young people 20 and under. 
Next is rapidly progressive periodontitis. This, uh, these people also have abnormal PMNs. PMNs are neutrophils. Um, but this population is a group of people in their 30s, 30 years old or less. And then the last type are the refractory periodontitis. These people are adults. And they have done everything to get rid of it, and it won't go away. So now we'll get into more detail about the early onset periodontitis, the prepubertal lap and gap. Prepubertal perio found in children, 12 and under. It's rare. It can be localized or generalized. Um... And the teeth that are affected are primary and secondary detention. Detention. So it's uh, um, deciduous teeth and permanent teeth are affected. LAP, localized aggressive periodontitis. This is found in adolescents and young adults. It's more common in females. LAP is, and that's in red. Um... The teeth that are affected are the permanent, first molars, and incisors. They are the ones that are affected more often than not. Other teeth can be affected, but if it's localized aggressive periodontitis, it's just mostly incisors and first molars. Associated with abnormal PMNs and associated with a decreased plaque and calculus, which is weird. Diagnosis occurs with the presence of AA. Treatment is SRP, antibiotics, and periosurgery. GAP is the next one, and that is generalized aggressive periodontitis. Adults and young, young adults and adolescents, 20 and under. This is more rare than LAP. It's generalized. The teeth that are affected, this is in red. Um, it affects secondary dentition, all teeth. Associated with abnormal PMNs. Uh, associated with increase in plaque and calculus. Diagnosis. It says clinical presentation, and this shows an increase in P. gingivalis and AA in the periodontal pockets. LAP only has AA, but GAP has P. ging and AA. Treatment is all the same. SRP, antibiotics, periosurgery, and OHI. Now we'll talk about abscesses. Abscesses of the periodontium. Number one, gingival abscess. This forms in the gingival tissues after a foreign body is forced into the sulcus, just like a popcorn hole. Um, clinically, you will see a painful swelling of the free gingiva with a purulent exudate. Treatment is to remove the foreign body and clean the area. An acute periodontal abscess is periodontal pocket becomes occluded often after an SRP leads to rapid bone loss if untreated. 
Clinically, the patient will experience painful swellings with prelent excudate within a pocket. I would know this is take Advil unless you have, unless your patient has congestive heart failure. Um, but take the Advil for the pain and swelling for 24 hours. Um, if it's untreated or it doesn't go away, it'll turn into a chronic abscess, so that's why it's very important. The next one is a chronic periodontal abscess. This is where periodontal pocket is occluded. No treatment during the pain of acute abscess can lead to the chronic abscess. There's no symptoms, no pain, because the pain from the acute abscess has already gone away, and the chronic abscess is not, not as painful, so you don't even know. It leads to continued bone loss in the area of infection. The next one is pericoronal abscess, also known as pericornitis. Um, the periodontal abscess associated with a partially erupted tooth, usually the third molars. It is extremely painful and it is recurrent until extraction or gingivectomy is performed. Occurs around an operculum, which is a flap of tissue partially covering the tooth. Can spread to the submandibular tissues. Uh, the patient will have a limited opening. And then the treatment for acute, chronic, and pericoronal abscesses are debridement of the periodontal pocket, surgical curatage, which is removal of the cellular epithelium, and to give the patient systemic antibiotics if they have a fever or evidence of cellulitis. Uh, and you can tell by facial swelling. Endodontic lesions. You can have a combined abscess with endodontic abscesses and periodontal abscess. It can occur if periodontitis extends apically and infects the pulp. Clinically, you can test to see if this is what the situation is through percussion sensitivity and purulent excudate in a periodontal pocket. The treatment for this, there's two things, a root canal and an SRP. You want to do the root canal first and wait for the periodontal lesion to heal. Then do the SRP after the endoabscess has healed because obviously um, after the root canal there won't be any pain. Next we're going to talk about occlusal trauma. Um, you have primary traumatic occlusion or secondary traumatic occlusion. Primary traumatic occlusion is heavy occlusal forces on normal periodontium causing injury to tissues. Secondary traumatic occlusion is normal occlusal forces on compromised periodontium causing injury to tissues. Traumatic occlusion does not initiate inflammation. That would be gingivitis and periodontal disease. Traumatic occlusion can increase uh, clinical attachment loss and 
increased bone destruction in the presence of inflammation. So again, primary traumatic occlusion is heavy occlusal forces on normal periodontum, and that's primary. So heavy forces on a normal periodontum. Secondary are normal occlusal forces on a compromised periodontum. So it's kind of like flip-flopped. So primary, the periodontum is normal, and you have heavy occlusal forces. Secondary, the occlusion is compromised, but there's just normal forces on it. So I hope you don't get that mixed up. We are approaching an hour for this section, so I will conclude with uh, the occlusal trauma and pick it back up at surgery, sutures, and periodontal dressing so that this session is not too long. Alrighty, so this is the second part of the periodontology board review. Periodontal surgeries, sutures, and dressings. Um, so we'll go over some definitions. A gingivectomy is an excision of the gingiva. Gingivoplasty is reshaping the gingiva. An apically positioned flap. This is an incision. The gingiva is pushed away from the bone and the teeth on the buccal and lingual surfaces. Infected epithelium and connective tissue is removed. Exposed roots are cleaned. And this is in red. The flaps readapt at a more apical level and they are sutured. Next is an access flap. An incision is maps are reflected to access root surfaces and crystal bone. Then you have a complete debridement of the roots. The flaps are repositioned and sutured back. Next is a ostectomy. This is the removal of supporting bone. Osteoplasty. This is the removal of non-supporting bone. A mucogingival defect. This is the area of no attached gingiva. Lateral pedicle graft. This is sliding gingival tissue from, and this is in red, adjacent tooth or papilla to cover exposed root surfaces. The free gingival graft, this is excision, keratinized epithelium, plus underlining connective tissue from a donor site, usually the palate. Subepithelial connective tissue graft, this is excision of subepithelial connective tissue at donor site, Epithelium at the donor site is sutured close. It says close. So closed. Full thickness flap. This includes the periodos periosteum. 
um, to remove the bone. Split thickness flap. This is epithelium and con connective tissue, no periosteum. Access to root surfaces, put and then put the gingival tissue back. So now we're going to talk about the types of periodontal surgery. We have the pocket reduction or elimination surgeries, which is gingivectomy, gingivoplasty, or apically positioned flap. We have access to root surfaces with a distal wedge flap, modified Wyndham flap, or open flap curatage. We have treatment of osseous defects, such as osteectomy, osteoplasty, osseous grafting, and membrane therapy. And then lastly, we have correcting mucogingival defects, such as lateral pedicle gingival graft, free gingival graft, and subgingival connective tissue graft. Um, pocket reduction surgery, this is in red. We have gingivectomy, gingioplasty. This is rarely used with periodontitis because it causes recession. Um, but it, they do it if you have really deep pockets with fibrous tissue. So it's better just remove all that old thick tissue. Um, drug-induced or familial gingival hyperplasia, or it's done if you have crown lengthening for restorative work, like you're getting a crown. Contraindications are infrabony pockets. If you have an infrabony pocket, it's, uh, there's no access. Or if you have a large wound, you can't do it. If you have anatomy that prevents a proper incision angle, you can't do it. And if it's going to cause too much recession and root exposure, then you can't do it either. Next is apically positioned flap. It's in red at under a pocket reduction surgery. And it says causes recession as well. We don't really need to know every little detail, so I'm going to start just reading what's in red here. Next is the access flap surgery. It says this is not for pocket reduction. It provides access to root surfaces for debridement only um, to create conditions for reattachment. So they literally just open it up so that they can do a, a SRP. And there's no contraindications. So now we're going to talk about the osseous defect surgery. You have, it says the surgeries include ostectomy and osteoplasty, which are usually performed together. And which, remember, osteectomy is removal of supporting bone, where osteoplasty is removal of non-supporting bone. And... Let's see. Indications are infrabony pockets. Um, the osseous defect regenerative surgery also includes the osseous grafting, which has a 60% success rate. 
The indications are an infrabony defect and class two furcations. Infrabony defect, um, it says three wall defect is best for this and there's no contraindications. There's four types of these bone grafts, uh, autograft, allograft, alloplast, and xenograft. Autograft is a donor bone from the patient. Allograft is donor bone from another person, usually a cadaver. Alloplast, this is a donor bone that's synthetic, hydroxyapatite. No newborn bone forms, it's just synthetic. And then a xenograft, which is donor bone from another species, usually a pig or a cow. I don't, I don't know if you guys remember, but I already did a segment on these, and I told you how I remember them. Allograft or autograft. This is autograft. It's from you. You're giving yourself an autograft because you're famous. Allograft. I'm allowing you to give me a donation. Um, Alloplast, it's plastic, so it's synthetic. And then xenograft, it sounds like, a, it's an X, but it sounds like a Z from a zoo, so it's coming from an animal. And that's how I can remember uh, those types of bone grafts. Next is um, the guided membrane therapy, and this is very successful. There's a 90% success rate. In indications are... Just like the other infrabony defect, three wall defects are the best. In a class two furcation, no contraindications. In red, it says most predictable method for regenerating lost periodontal tissues. Allows healing via selective cell repopulation. Excludes epithelial cells during healing. Allows for proliferation of healing cells from alveolar bone and PDL. Note, this is in red, there is no absolute minimum width of attached gingiva. It says the ideal width of attached gingiva is three millimeters. The other note says research indicates most epithelium from free gingival graft is lost after transplant. Connective tissue reforms epithelium during healing. And then we have three types of mucogingival surgeries that we're gonna talk about. We have the lateral pellicle gingival graft. It's in red, it says blood supply is in the donor tissue. Indications are, indications and contraindications are almost all the same here. Indications are mucogingival defect. Contraindication is a lack of donor tissue. So lateral pellicle gingival graft. Blood supplies in the donor tissue. Free gingival graft. Increased pain at the donor site. Usually the palate. Um, the graft must be immobile for seven days to establish a blood supply. Indications. Mucogingival defect. Contraindication is lack of donor time. This, uh, tissue, just like the last one. And then subepithelial connective tissue graft. This is the treatment of choice. Decreased pain at donor site. Graft must be immobile for seven days to establish a blood supply. So these, they're all very similar. 
Indication, mucogingival defect. Contraindication, lack of adequate keratinized tissue at recipient site. Next are sutures. Suture material usually used is braided black silk, that's in red. Non-resorbable plus bacterial adherent. Um, must be removed, this is in red, in seven to 14 days. Prevents stitch abscess, which is an infection around the sutures. Basic rules, you wanna tie the suture knots on buccal surfaces. Leave two to three millimeter tail beyond the knot, and the location plus number of sutures must be documented in the chart. Sutures are used to bring tissue edges closer together, equaling a decreased space for cells to have to fill in. Um, Post-periodontal surgical dressing. A periodontal pack, periopack. Eugenol-based material placed over sutures. It's like a Band-Aid. The functions, and this is in red, it holds the flaps tightly to the teeth and bone and protects the wound. It increases patient comfort. It, it must control the bleeding before, you must control the bleeding before placement. And this is in red, it does not prevent plaque buildup. So your patient's still gonna get plaque buildup underneath the periopack. Periodontal regeneration. This is a formation of new alveolar bone, new cementum, and new PDL on the root surface of a previously diseased tooth. So here are some of the techniques. We have SRP which is non-surgical and not predictable, there is a 30% success rate. Bone grafting, this is surgical. We have the four types that we talked about with the 60% success rate. And then the guided tissue regeneration, the membrane therapy, it is surgical, and it has the 90% success. So... This slide has probably the most important information on it. Okay, next we're gonna talk about period treatment. Um, so this is in red, treatment planning. We, first we have the preliminary phase, which is emergency treatment, extraction of hopeless teeth. This is gonna be at your patient's first visit. They haven't been to the dentist in 10 years, they have period disease. So the first thing we're going to do, this is like the very first phase, it's preliminary, emergency treatment, and we're going to extract any teeth that are just hopeless and get rid of any pain that they're experiencing. Um, next is going to be phase one treatment. This includes controlling and eliminating etiologic factors. This is the etiologic phase. We're going to control, uh, concentrate on plaque control, antimicrobial therapy, carries removal, restorations, occlusal therapy, scaling and root planning, oh, anything we need to do. Phase two therapy, this is the surgical phase. 
This is when we're going to perform periodontal surgery, implant placement, uh, endodontic therapy. Then we have phase three. This is the restorative phase. We replace any missing teeth, put in any final restorations, such as crowns, bridges, uh, removable partial dentures, etc. And then we're going to have phase four therapy. This is the maintenance phase. This actually begins after phase one. Um, plaque and calculus removal, monitoring the patient's periodontal condition. All right, SRP, clinical response after an SRP. Healing by repair. You have a decreased probing depth, attachment gain as the long JE, no new connective tissue attachment. Sometimes there's recession, decreased bleeding and inflammation, and the patient often has sensitivity. Healing is greatest three to six weeks after therapy. Changes will continue for 12 months. Note in red, no formation of new bone, no, connective, no new connective tissue attachment to the root surface. You have the long junctional epithelium instead. And no new cementum formation. Perio reevaluation. Um, this is four to six weeks after debridement is completed. Evaluates the patient's progress, tissue healing, and recall interval so that you can tell um, how often they should be coming back. Three months, four months, five months, whatever. And the pockets, the periodontal pockets will re-epithelialize re in about seven days. Connective tissue healing takes three to four weeks, up to three to four months. And that's why we don't probe because we don't want to penetrate that new connective tissue. All right, sensitivity. Created or increased after periodontal treatment usually resolves in a few weeks. The cause is the hydrodynamic theory of dentin sensitivity. Sensitivity due to open dentinal tubules are exposed to the oral cavity. All stimuli, cold, sweet, acid, air, touch, causes pain. Heat sensitivity is associated with pulpal changes. Um, plaque acids increase sensitivity, so it's important to remove plaque daily. And then warn patient before treatment about the sensitivity that they could experience after. Mm. All right, so now we're going to talk about the chemotherapeutic agents. Number one, chlorhexidine. This is called PerioGuard or Peridex, but it is chlorhexidine. It's the most effective antibacterial agent available. It decreases plaque and gingivitis by 45 to 60%. You've got to have a prescription for it, and there are some side effects such as staining, uh, taste, altered taste, and 
calculate more calculus forms. Number two, Listerine. This is called phenolic compounds. Reduces plaque and gingivitis by 30% over the counter, but it is it does burn your tissues. Feels like it's burning and it tastes bitter. Number three, CPC compounds. It's cetylpredinium chloride. That's a really big word. Um, examples are Crest Pro Health. Decreased gingivitis and decreased bacteria for up to 12 hours. No long-term studies showing clinical effectiveness. Now this is in red. The CPC compounds or Crest Pro Health is not accepted by ADA to reduce gingivitis. Number four, stannous fluoride, 0.4%, decreased caries and decreased plaque. It can cause staining and no long-term studies showing reduced gingivitis. The ADA seal is for caries control only, so it's not for the plaque on there. Number five, anti-calculus agents such as Colgate Total, Crest Tartar Protection. The active ingredient is soluble pyrophosphate or zinc citrate. Decreased supergingival calculus formation by 20 to 40 percent. Some patients experience sloughing. There's no research establishing benefit for periodontal patients. Um, so non-surgical periodontal therapy adjunctive treatments are systemic antibiotics such as tetracyclines, metronidazole, and penicillin. Decreases bacterial load and it enhances the host defense. Irrigation with antimicrobials says effect, effective in hard to scale areas, such as for cations, deeper pockets. Applied with an ir irrigating syringe and irrigating devices like a water pick. You want to use this. Um, says agent can reach site of disease activity in the base of the pocket. And some of these agents, the, the microbials, the antimicrobials that they irrigate with are chlorhexidine, stannous fluoride, or pevidone iodine. Um, some locally applied antibiotics include Arrestin, which is minocycline, Atridox, which is doxycycline, and the perio chip, which is chlor is chlorhexidine in a chip. All right. Antibiotic therapy is reserved for refractory refractory periodontitis, specifically for forms of aggressive perio. And again, the systemic antibiotics are um, 
tetracycline, which is minocycline or doxycycline, which is uh, the drug is concentrated in the gingival fluid and it attacks the AA bacteria. And then also metrondazole is the other one. And PGENT, Prevotella, and Spirochetes are targeted. And then in the locally applied antibiotics, this one is not actually indicated for refractory periodontitis, but the types are periochip, arrestin, and atridox. The periochip is a large chip that's placed down in the pocket. Um, and it's biodegradable, so you don't have to remove it. And it gives you an antimicrobial action for 7 to 10 days. Where Arrestin is the monocycline hydrochloride. And it gives you sustained release for 14 days. Easy to place. And it actually helps to decrease the probing depths. And then Atridox is the last one, and it gives you sustained release over 21 days. And it's a little more difficult to place because you have to use a syringe and a packing instrument, and it needs refrigerated, and it costs a little bit more. So I feel like I typically see a Rustin and... I don't really, uh, irrigating, irrigating with chlorhexidine. Those are like the most common ones. Next, we'll talk about the parts of an implant. You have the implant fixture, which is made out of titanium. The implant abutment, which is a prosthetic component. The abutment screw, which attaches the implant abutment to the implant fixture. And then the prosthesis, which is the restoration that attaches to the implant abutment. When you're getting a implant, the bone and implant form a direct connection called osseointegration. The criteria for implant success depends on no peri-implant radiolucency probing depths of less than 45 millimeters and no mobility, no, no bone loss greater than one-third of the implant, and you don't want to see any pain or infection. And the person needs to come in every three to four months to have their implant checked out. Radiographs are taken more frequently every six months after the or for six months after the placement and then 12 months after placement and then every two to three years from then on. Plastic instruments are used, no metal, no metal instrument to avoid scratching and no abrasive paste when polishing. And then the nug and nup. Nug is necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis, also known as trench mouth. The patient will have a rapid onset of pain and gingival lesions in adolescents and young adults. This is related to excessive stress. And the lesions that you'll see are punched out papilla, white necrotic pseudomembrane, 
marginal gingiva, attached gingiva, will be red and inflamed. There will be a distinctive odor, and it's referred to as fedoris. Feeder oris. Is it my feet or his? And that's how we remembered it. Um, the bacteria in all cases are Vincent's organisms. The fusiform bacilli dash P intermedia and spirochetes dash trepanoma. Treatment is complete plaque debridement and uh, really good home care. Nup. This is necrotizing ulcerative periodontitis, and this is just an extension of NUG. It develops when NUG extends to attachment apparatus, which is the PDL, alveolus, and cementum, or alveolar bone and cementum, associated with systemic immune deficiency, and this can be diagnostic of HIV changing over into the AIDS virus. The HIV lesions that you will see on the gingiva is, for one, it's Kaposi sarcoma, which is the only purple lesion, but it looks like a mole. It looks nasty. Linear gingiva erythema. This is like a dark red line along the gingival margin, outlining the tooth. Nup, the necrotizing ulcerative periodontitis. Necrotizing stomatitis, recurring candidiasis, and AIDS-related lymphoma. And then the syndromes that have periodontitis are Papillon-Lafarve syndrome and Down syndrome. And then all pathology that has gingival lesions... You have leukemia, hereditary gingival fibromatomas, pregnancy gingivitis, dilantin gingival hyperplasia, lichen planus, pemphigus vulgaris, mucous membrane pemphigoid, systemic lupus erythematosus, Pyogenic granuloma, also known as pregnancy tumor, smoker's melanosis, parulus, also known as gum boil, syphilis, HPV, HSV, HPV is human papillomavirus, HSV is uh, the herpes simplex virus, melanoma, candidiasis, Nug and Nup. And this concludes Perio. So I just wanted to add something to... I just wanted to add something to the periodontology section that I didn't get to earlier. And... That is some vocabulary that describes the gingiva. And I'll just go through that quickly. The bulbous, this means papilla is enlarged and bulges out of the interproximal space. Blunted is papilla is flat and does not fill the interproximal space. 
cratered. This is where the papilla has a concave depression. It's described as scooped out, scooped out papilla. It's cratered. Papillary, only the interdental papilla is inflamed. Marginal, this is the gingival margin and papilla are inflamed. Diffuse, gingival margin, papilla, and attached gingiva are inflamed. Localized, disease affects 30% or less of all sites. Generalized, disease affects 30% or more of all sites. Recurrent disease, this says new signs of destruction reappear after periodontal therapy caused by inadequate professional care or self-care. Refractory disease, destruction despite appropriate professional care and self-care. Disease site, area of tissue destruction, inactive disease site, disease site that is stable, active disease site, this is a disease site that is currently undergoing destruction. Now we're going to read about the necrotizing periodontal diseases. I've talked about nugging up before more than once, but I just like to hear this point of view on it. And it says, NUG, necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis. NUG, or necrosis, means death. Tissue death limited to the gingiva. This is stress-related and seen in young adults, college students under a great deal of stress, or soldiers on the front line. It's also called trench mouth. Um, characteristics of the condition include crater-like depressions at the interdental papillae, also described as punched out papilla. Gray necrotized sloughing surrounded by a red halo. And that's uh, linear erythemia or something. The red halo. There's a strong fetid odor and spontaneous bleeding. Pain, fever, malaise, and swollen lymph nodes. Um, spirochetes. It just says spirochetes all by itself. <laughs> but just know spirochetes are there. The treatment consists of debridement of plaque and debris using an ultrasonic scaler. Reappointment in one to two days for a complete periodontal treatment. Advise this patient to avoid any kind of irritated food, such as hot, spicy, or any alcohol. NUP, necrotizing ulcerative periodontitis. This is necrosis of the gingival tissues combined with a loss of attachment and alveolar bone. Patients present with symptoms similar to NUG, accompanied by loose teeth, rapid loss of bone and soft tissue, and this occurs most commonly in immunocompromised patients with diseases such as HIV or AIDS.
abscesses. Gingival abscesses. This is infections of the surface gingiva and the interdental papillae without affecting the tooth or PDL. Periodontal abscesses. Infection of the lateral aspect of tooth that begins in periodontal pockets may develop after periodontal debridement. This is the second most common type of dental abscess. Um, accompanied by a fistula, which is an opening to the outside. Fistula can develop. Tooth, tooth is vital and the patient can experience acute or dull pain if the infection is chronic. Periapical abscess results from pulp infections, commonly related to deep tooth decay. Now, this one is the most common type of dental abscess. That's what it says. And pericornitis, which is infection of tissue flap, known as the operculum, surrounding the crown of a partially erupted tooth, caused by accumulation of food and bacteria under the tissue. Third molars are most infected. Most affected. Dihiscence and fenestration. Dihiscence is the loss of alveolar bone on the facial aspect of a tooth, rarely lingual, that leaves a characteristic oval root exposed defect from the cemento enamel junction apically. The defect may be one or two millimeters long or extend the full length of the root. The three features of dihiscence include gingival recession, alveolar bone loss, and root exposure. Fenestration is a window of bone loss on the facial or lingual aspect of a tooth that places the exposed root surface directly in contact with gingiva or alveolar mu mucosa. It can be dis distinguished by the dehiscence in that the fenestration is bordered by alveolar bone along its coronal aspect. The difference is that the fenestration is not, the bone is not fully gone. There's still a part of the bone underneath of it, of the, uh, the hole where the bone is not. So just keep it in mind that dihiscence is like the whole thing is gone and fenestration is just part of it is gone. Um, ankylosis. This is the fusion of enamel, dentin, or root cementum with adjacent alveolar bone. It occurs mostly in deciduous teeth. Eruption fails to happen at the proper time and needs to be extracted. Creates a hollow sound when tapped. Impaction, it's when the tooth is positioned against another structure and fails to erupt. Impaction can be caused by dense bone, tooth malpositioning, such as what happens with wisdom teeth, and inadequate space for eruption. Third molars are most commonly affected. 
Um, limitations of radiographs for periodontal evaluation. Furcation involvement cannot be exactly identified because of the buccal and lingual alveolar bones are superimposed and the angles of the roots can mask bone defects. For bone loss to be diagnosed from a radiograph, 40% bone loss must have already occurred. Therefore, radiographs may not detect early signs of periodontitis. Shape of the bony defect can be, cannot be accurately identified. The dental professional may need to open the area to evaluate the shape and severity of bone loss. Radiographs do not reveal tissue margins, soft tissue margins, or periodontal pockets. They also don't reveal tooth mobility. Bone level. Normal level of the alveolar crest is located between 1 to 2 millimeters apical to the cement cemento enamel junction or CJ crest of the cortical plate is the first area to be involved with bone destruction and can appear blunted or fuzzy with disease detect fuzziness at the crest of the interdental alveolar bone to confirm periodontal diseases Bone loss pattern is measured from the CJ to the alveolar crest. You have horizontal bone loss and vertical bone loss. This is really important. This will be on boards. Horizontal bone loss is the most common. The bone reduction is parallel to the CJ. Vertical bone loss is oblique direction of bone destruction really bad. Uh, periapical images or vertical bite wings are used to assess bone level and other problems in the periodontium. High KVP produces a longer scale of contrast, many shades of gray, and is often preferred in detecting periodontal diseases. So if you're looking for perio, make sure that KVP is turned up. Abscesses, uh, this is in regards to radiographically. Periodontal abscesses, it says radiolucency on the lateral side of the tooth. So you can see a periodontal abscess radiographically. It will be dark on the side of the tooth. Periapical abscesses are also dark. You have a radiolucency, but it will be around the apex of the tooth. Do not misinterpret the radiolucency of the mental foramen present near the apex of the mandibular premolars for an abscess. Abscess, trauma, or inflammation can cause resorption of the tooth structure. Periodontal ligament space. This appears as a thin radiolucent black line surrounding the root. In health, the PDL space is uniform. Widened space indicates trauma 
and or infection. The lamina dura, which is a sheet of compact bone that lies adjacent to the PDL, appears as a continuous white radiopaque line around the tooth, also following the PDL space. It appears dense and continuous in health and thin in disease. And that is the lamina dura. Next, the superbony pocket and infrabony pocket. A superbony pocket, the base of the pocket is above coronal, the alveolar crest, and it's created by horizontal bone loss. The infrabony pocket, the base of the pocket, is below or apical to the alveolar crest, created by vertical bone loss, may exhibit various forms such as three wall defects, two wall defects, or one wall defects. Hmm. That's it.